1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Family members of loved ones in long-term care received some welcome news this past week. Starting this coming Wednesday, inside visits will be allowed in Ontario nursing homes. Visitors will still need to test negative for COVID-19 in the past 14 days, while outside visitors will no longer be required to take a test for the virus. The long-term care home COVID-19 lockdowns were devastating for residents in many cases because they have dementia or Alzheimer's and did not understand why they weren't seeing their loved ones who helped as caregivers during the pre-pandemic days. On Thursday, while filling in for Libby Nimer, I was joined by a power panel of long-term care experts to discuss the changes. Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, and Marissa Lennox of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. We were very pleased with yesterday's announcement.
2: On the one hand, of course, critical investments made to long-term care, but on the other, yes, easing restrictions for family visitors and essential caregivers in a way that seemingly balances the risks of COVID with the risks of resident isolation so you know i think we've seen a lot of progress in terms of controlling the spread of covid19 in the province and also in long-term care and we certainly don't want to see a case where we go backwards Um, but i think that this is a measured response and we were certainly glad to see the province move in that direction
1: lisa you've said that people um were not only dying after contracting COVID-19, but they were dying of loneliness during the pandemic because they were so used to having family members uh, by their side in these facilities.
2: Yes, it's it, Jane, it's just been so heartbreaking because to protect the residents in long-term care from the initial outbreak of COVID, homes had to close their doors to visitors uh, who provide such important uh, support, emotionally and physically to their family members and, and loved ones. So it was a very difficult choice that had to be made early on. And now that the pandemic is continuing um, and the numbers are reducing, we still need to remain vigilant, but we need families to come back in.
1: Donna, how much relief will these inside visits provide? You
3: know,
2: Jane, I- going to be
3: enormously helpful to stimulating our, 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 our the mental health and well-being of our residents. Uh, certainly, it is going to be an overwhelming relief for their family members who have been isolated from them. Uh, this has been a long four months, and I don't think any of us saw that it was going to be this long. Uh, I, I think part of the challenge is going to be, and, and Marissa and Lisa both spoke about balance, is how do we balance safety with ensuring that we we re- reunite our family members, uh, but it's only going to work if we have the, re- the appropriate staffing and resources to ensure that everybody's kept safe with personal protective equipment and infection prevention and control and and hand hygiene and those things. So Uh, We're going to need more resources, actually, in terms of human resources to support this because it's going to put strain on, on those homes that already had a critical staffing shortage to begin with. But this is about a how, not an if.
1: Donna, have you, um, heard any more details about what these inside visits will resemble? In other words, are they, is there a time limit to them? Can family members who before the pandemic were coming in for hours at a time do that as well? Or will they be kept to a certain amount of time?
3: Well, Jean and Lisa and I have both been part of some of these discussions uh, together with the the, uh, resident council and family councils. And and our sense is that there's going to be a lot more flexibility in terms of uh, the homes being able to work with their family councils and resident councils to define this with the balance being, um, how do we make sure that these are safe? How do we make sure that uh, we are not overtaxing the resources. I, my sense is, and Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong, um, there's not going to be as much detail in this as in uh, perhaps earlier policies. and There will be some discretion, but, but certainly... Uh, we think that there's a, a, a remarkable opportunity here to partner with our, our family and essential caregivers to develop a program to build their competency and capacity in infection prevention and c- control, where they're actually clear partners in this. Uh, and I think that's going to r- work on a home by home basis as we as we look across the province. Some of those models have already emerged through this, this first wave of outdoor visiting, uh, but we have a real opportunity to make this better and to ensure that on an ongoing basis, uh, we don't have to close the doors again.
1: Lisa, would you like to add to that?
2: Yeah, I think that the way the policy is written, it, as Donna said, it has some more flexibility, which is so important for homes to be able to respond to the needs of the residents and the families both. Uh, You know, some families actually prefer virtual visits because it's possible that they live out of town um, or they want to self-isolate themselves if they're very frail. And then other people, of course, want to be in person. So we need to make sure that we can balance all of the needs and work uh, collaboratively with residents in the home and their family members to uh, make sure that
1: they can access their loved ones. Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Marissa Lennox of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. For small business owners, this COVID-19 crisis has been more than challenging. In most cases, it's been a threat to their very existence. A survey of 4,500 small business owners was recently conducted by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Julie Kwasinski is Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She joined me on Wednesday with results of the survey.
4: We've been asking members every week, and that will be every two weeks, three simple So we can gauge how it changes over time. Mm -hmm. The first question is, are you fully open? 49% said yes. Now that's, of course, before we have Ontario's Stage 3 openings that start this Friday. We also ask them about whether their staffing levels are normal And 32% said that they are back to normal staffing levels. And we also asked them whether or not they're back at normal revenues. And for Ontario, that number was a staggeringly low number of only 20% being back to normal revenues. Wow. That tells you that Ontario businesses are starved for revenue. And we all know a lot of these businesses, Jane, they've been closed zero revenue but bills are piling up so what does that mean we've now discovered our latest stat when we surveyed our members it's an estimate of course that the total small business debt in ontario due solely to COVID 19 is a whopping 49.9 billion dollars
1: And in terms of individual small businesses, what kind of debt are they looking at? That's sort of easier for us to digest.
4: Oh, yes. On average in Ontario, small businesses, and again, solely due to COVID-19 and nothing else, average debt of $152,000 per small business. Now, that is huge for a small business.
1: It is. When you think about a lot of small business owners take even very little salary. Imagine losing $135,000 or being in debt by that much. When in yeah. a normal year, they don't even take that big of a paycheck.
4: Oh, absolutely. That's a big chunk of change. And you're looking, we also ask them, given that they have this monstrous debt, um, we ask them how they're financing the revenue shortfalls and extra costs. And very telling numbers, too, Jane. 43% in Ontario are relying on their personal savings, Mm -hmm. 36% on credit cards, 19% on bank loans, 13% retirement savings, mortgages 10%, and even loans from families and friends at 10%. So you can see the need for small business support to make sure that your favourite neighbourhood businesses make it to the other side of COVID-19.
1: No, absolutely. Um, Do you get a sense from your small business owners how long they can carry on using these other forms of uh, finances uh, before they have to say it's just not going to work out?
4: So first of all, um, we also discovered that three-quarters of Ontario's small businesses have taken on debt. So that's one fact. And 67% of those, so that's a huge majority, that have taken on debt say that it will take more than a year to pay it off.
5: Mm
4: -hmm. So on top of that, there's another interesting stat that I just dug up for your show that I thought your, your listeners would be interested in. We've also asked our members if they're actively considering winding down their business or going bankrupt. And in Ontario, 16.4% said yes. Now, to give that some context, Jane, that number is normally only 1%. So at first glance, you say, oh, 16.4%, what does 16.4%, what does that mean? It sure means a heck of a lot when that bankruptcy number usually is around 1% and no higher.
1: Julie Kwasinski, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Prior to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's good news announcement on Thursday that provinces and territories will be receiving $19 billion in aid, there were some dire warnings coming out of Toronto City Hall. Mayor John Tory issued two different unacceptable scenarios if the federal government did not come through to help the city with a $1.35 billion pandemic-related funding shortfall. Our property taxes here in Toronto could go up by 60%, or we could see massive cuts to service, including the shutting down of subway lines and the laying off of some 19,000 City of Toronto employees. Neither of these will come to pass since Ontario is receiving $7 billion of the $19 billion in federal aid, with indications from Premier Doug Ford that Toronto will receive its emergency bailout. But when I spoke with City Councilor and Budget Committee member Brad Bradford on Wednesday, the good news from the federal government had yet to be delivered.
5: We recognize that we're all in this together and, and obviously we need to work with the, the federal government and the provincial government to get through this. Um, and there's a role for, for us to play at the city in, you know, ways that we can find savings and tighten things up. We're always looking to do that. Um, so, you know, so far we've placed over a thousand full time and nearly 500 part time staff on unpaid leave. Um, the city also saved millions of dollars by electing uh, not to hire 8,000 recreational workers, uh, over the summer whose services haven't been required due to pandemic related programming reductions. Um, you know, similar, similar measures were taken at, uh, TTC, uh, with staffing and, uh, you know, we're doing everything that we can to, to shore up the budget on our end. But the reality is, and the budget variance report that came out yesterday paints a very stark picture um, this is not something that we're going to be able to do on our own. Uh, and as you alluded to, you know, the, the gap, the remaining 1.35 billion, uh, on the operating side, that shortfall, you know, you would, you would close that gap with a 60% property tax hike, which is absolutely, uh, not, not something that we can afford to do. Um, or we're going to have serious service cuts. Uh, and I don't think that's, uh, that's something that's going to position Toronto uh, for success going forward either. So we really do need the province and the federal government to uh, you know stop uh, stop the standoff and come to the table. Uh, with some real solutions for Toronto.
1: I just want to ask you first before we get into the details about the unpaid leave for those city workers you were talking about. Are, are they, have they gone on the CERB? Are they taking, uh, employment insurance? How are they surviving, uh, without their paychecks from, from work?
5: Yeah, they would be uh they would be using the the government programs that are available to them uh, you know there's still uh, they, they still have benefits um, you know that we're making sure that they' they're, they're may hold them that way but they they would be relying on the, the programs that have been made available from uh, the different levels of government right uh, so
1: the biggest mm-hmm. revenue shortfall has come as a result of a huge decrease in ridership on the TTC during the early days of the pandemic. How severe
5: is that situation? Uh, You know, almost severe would be an understatement. Uh, We're looking at a $700 million shortfall. Uh, At the peak, we were hemorrhaging about $26 million a week. Uh, Those numbers are starting to come down as ridership returns and uh, consumer confidence comes back to the TTC um but this really highlights a systemic problem that you know frankly I've I've been uh, going on about since I I joined council in 2018 and that's the lack of any operating dollar contribution to Toronto transit uh from other levels of government you look at jurisdictions across north america the other big transit systems they all have state or federal dollars or both that help contribute to those operating costs here in toronto nearly 70% of that um, operating fare is captured through the fare box. Uh, that's where the revenue comes from. And then the city provides nearly a $900 million subsidy as well. Very generous. Um, but when you see ridership levels tank like they have, we're missing out on that 68%, 70% that comes from the fare box. And that's why we're, you know, hemorrhaging 25, 26 million bucks a week. And we're facing a $700 shortfall. So this is a prime example of where we can use this COVID-19 crisis to really make a systemic fat fix, um, that was never sustainable and now is the biggest single, uh, single, single biggest hole in our, in our budget. I think that the message to the federal government and the provincial governments, I know that there's no ribbons to cut on operating dollars. It's not a big capital project. Um, but the Toronto Transit Commission is the lifeblood of this city and in fact the region, Toronto is the economic engine and we definitely need sustainable funding for our TTC going forward.
1: Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19, Beaches, East York, and Budget Committee member Brad Bradford. Our conversation took place before Prime Minister Trudeau announced financial assistance for provinces and cities. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. As we discussed with Councillor Bradford, riders left the TTC in record numbers when the COVID-19 crisis began. Many people were staying home to work in the beginning of the pandemic, so they didn't need the TTC. And if they did need to travel to work, many would take their cars instead. But now, four months later, riders are starting to come back to the TTC. CEO Rick Leary released a fairly positive report recently, saying system ridership has increased 45 percent from the benchmark lows of late April. TTC spokesperson Stuart Green joined me on Wednesday to discuss
6: the gains. Where we're seeing that predominantly is on the bus network, uh, which, you know, saw the lowest drop uh, during the pandemic, I mean, it moves most of our customers uh, on on a regular basis anyway. Uh, but really, what we saw is that you know, in the inner suburbs of uh, you know, North North End, Topico, North York, Scarborough, places like that, where people uh, rely heavily on buses, typically, uh, they were still using buses. And a lot of those people, from from our surveying, were going to essential jobs. So that that continued. Uh, what we're seeing now, though, is a, a lot of people coming back. Making discretionary trips as as uh, as they do on weekends when, when maybe people aren't working as much, um, and and during the week what we're seeing is uh, people going to work uh, because you know things are reopening, which everybody wants and which is great news. So we are seeing people coming back. Um, you know we, we we will continue to do all of those things that uh, keep the system safe and clean, as you say, to give people that extra level of comfort and to keep our employees safe and our customers safe. One of the reasons we made masks mandatory was was uh, because you know as as people return, physical distancing won't be possible. So mm. it's all part and parcel of the same package for us.
1: Right. Well, Stuart, in the early days of the pandemic, we were seeing video of uh, cleaners in all of the buses at the end of the day and on the subways. Um, you were adding extra buses to some of the routes that you were mentioning there, where yep. uh, the essential workers were too crowded in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, what does the system look like now? I mean, in terms of, of that cleaning and disinfecting and making sure sure it's safe? Uh,
6: it looks very similar. Uh, you know, we, we we are doing multiple vehicle cleanings each day. So at the end of line, uh, they get a little wipe down. At the end of service, they get a wipe down. The streetcars are getting sprayed at the end of line. So at Broadview Station or Dundas West Station. Uh, so so all of that continues. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, our operators have all of their PPE there uh, in either enclosed cabs or they're behind plexiglass. So uh, you know the system. The system is looking very similar. Uh, it's just that there are a few more people riding, which which is good.
1: But what about between uh, riders? So somebody's getting up, they're getting off the bus. Somebody else is coming in and sitting in that same seat. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel as a rider, confident when you know that maybe the person before you is an asymptomatic
6: COVID nineteen case? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, we we are keeping very, very close tabs on what's happening around the world, including in areas, uh, you know, in Asia, for example, where uh, they've, they've continued to have very, very busy transit systems. Uh, and, and we're keeping an eye on what's happening with respect to transmission on public transit. And there's no evidence uh, to suggest that uh... you know public transit is is a place where transmission is occurring so you know that that gives us a level of confidence but it doesn't make us complacent so uh... you know our advice to people is to try as best you can to still maintain that physical distance cover your face when you're on public transit, uh, you know, and, and and be respectful of other people's space as well. So with all of that, you know, I, I, you know, we, we, we feel that we're in a good place. The TTC remains a safe way to travel, uh, but we just need everyone to do their extra little bit uh, as, as they are in whether they're grocery shopping or, or doing whatever, just to, you know, keep everyone safe around them.
1: Stuart, I want to thank you very much. I feel... Um Just chatting with you as a longtime Toronto resident, I feel like I would be quite comfortable walking up to King Street and hopping on the streetcar right now with my mask and my hand sanitizer and would feel completely safe.
6: Yeah, I, I think you should. And we're doing our part. They're doing their part. It's all really, really important to, to keeping the city moving. And, you know, as the mayor has said repeatedly, you know, uh, having the TTC moving is is really important to getting the economy back open, getting people to those jobs. Uh, a lot of people who work in this city rely on public transit to get to their jobs. So uh, we're, we're happy to be doing our part. Um, and, and we're really pleased to see that, you know, everybody else is stepping up and doing their part, too.
1: That was TTC spokesperson Stuart Green in conversation with me on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Josie in Toronto phoned to say she is back riding the TTC.
3: I started taking the TTC quite a A month ago. Mm -hmm. So it's safe and clean, and you see that uh, the uh, workers are cleaning and taking the airport bus all the time. But then when you go in the bus, you have, it's kind of like holding all your body, not to touch anything. You just have to
2: use the precaution.
1: Michelle in Scarborough phoned to say she never had the option not to take the TTC. I never felt unsafe taking the TTC during the
2: COVID. Me and my family members were all working in a factory and grocery uh, jobs, and uh, we have continued to take the TTC every day. Um, They uh, the first time uh, there wasn't a lot of people on it, so there was more space. And the drivers are controlling um, uh, who gets onto the buses. I don't like that they sometimes uh, the buses are empty. They don't pick up people on the route. So that's one of the negatives. But I saw on the train that um, they're cleaning the train uh, more. So that was really good. And then um, uh the beginning, uh, people were not doing the masks. But as uh, it went along, like now, more people, most people are doing the masks. So that's really excellent. So I've never felt unsafe on the TTC
0: at all. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dick in Thornhill, who phoned about the good news that indoor visits will soon be allowed in long-term care homes. We're so
5: elated that um, this will be opening up. So we can go in there and take care of our um, our dad right now. We went in there last week in a bit of frustration of the of the hospital uh-huh. and we got in there to see him. You know, he was so much elated to see us. He would like to see us more uh, because we, we do have the virtual check chat, uh, chat uh, two, three times a week and that is not satisfying to him. He just wants to see us instead of having the virtual chat.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 367 Three six four one i am Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.